This morning as we begin our series in the book of James, I want to tell you a story about a really old book. And if you know much about me, you know that I love really old books and like to collect them. And I've actually had the, the blessing to see some of the oldest books in the world, though I, I can't afford to own them. I've been able to see some, and it's one of the joys of my life just to be around old books. And you may have seen in the news within the last couple of weeks that the oldest existing nearly complete Hebrew Bible was sold at auction. And, and this Hebrew Bible, this Hebrew Old Testament, is over a thousand years old. So it was composed at a time well before there was a printing press. All of this was written by hand, by one scribe, and it took over 100 different animal skins to produce all that, that was needed for the parchment pages that these, these Hebrew characters, these Hebrew scriptures could be written down. Now, when this item was sold at auction at Sotheby's a couple weeks ago, one of our church members, Larry Lancaster, sent me the article, and he said, you missed out. Well, the reality is it sold for $38 million, so no, I didn't. I didn't miss out. I, I was never in the running to be able to own this Bible. What, what's really amazing about the, the Codex Sassoon and its sale is that it had been owned by one person since the late 80s, a Swiss collector, and had never been put back on the, on the market. And the Jewish community had said, if this oldest living Hebrew Bible is ever put up for sale, we've got to find a way that we can buy this and get it back to Israel, make sure that it goes back home. And interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, myself, Zach Hudson, and Philip White, we were at a conference in Atlanta, and we just so happened to meet the rabbi of the largest synagogue there in Atlanta, who was a part of this effort and had told us, just watch the news. This Bible's going to go for sale. We've been raising this money, and we're, we're really confident we're going to win it. And indeed, they did. They won the auction for $38 million, and this Bible's going back to Tel Aviv, where it will be in the Jewish Museum there, and the community is so happy about that. It's an amazing treasure, an incredibly valuable book, but far more valuable than, than the actual worth in dollars of, of all that it took to, to compose, compose and preserve this thousand-plus-year-old text. Far more valuable are the words in it. And so often when we come to a book like the book of James, even when we open our Bibles and we come to Scripture, we think things like, wow, these are really ancient words. Or we think things like, wow, th this is really good stuff, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to help me have a better day. Or we even come across an, an, an older, more ancient version of Scripture, and we say, isn't it amazing that that's been preserved for us? And we fail sometimes to remember that the most valuable thing about the Word of God is that it's the Word of God. That God has given us His words, and He's allowed us as His people to be able to receive them. And, and through the, the, the help of the Holy Spirit, He allows us as people to be able to understand them. And, and when we understand them, hopefully what comes next is that we put them into practice. And there are certain parts of Scripture that are more practical than others to help us get to that place where we take the Word and we put it into practice. In fact, James is the New Testament book of wisdom. It's very similar to books from the Hebrew Scriptures like Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes in that what James has written is so practical for daily living 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we might rightly say that James is, yes, it's about the what and the why, but it's also about the how. And I'm praying that this summer, as we go through this practical little New Testament letter together, that its wisdom will be practical for all of us to do as James writes later in this chapter, to not merely listen to the word, but to do what it says. The James who wrote this letter and put all of this practical wisdom within it, we believe to be James, the, the younger brother, the half-brother of Jesus, James the Just. So this is not the James who followed Jesus as one of the twelve, but his younger brother. And we'll talk about this next week, but Jesus' brothers had a complicated relationship with him. And James was one of them who, who didn't follow Jesus as a disciple during Jesus' ministry. But later on, he, he felt this call and this commission, and Jesus himself set James apart as an apostle. And James is writing this letter from Jerusalem, there at, at home in Israel, and he writes it with the authority of an apostle. Whereas as we read it, we realize he, he is not speaking his own words. He's not writing his own words. But these two are the words of God. And they are the practical words of wisdom that God gave to James the apostle that he might deliver to the Christian community. But James tells us right there in the beginning of this letter in verse 1 who he's writing to. And who he's writing to in many ways is a, a very different audience than those who received a lot of the other New Testament letters. Because James says, I'm, I'm, I'm James, a servant of God, as the, the apostles often describe themselves, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say, of my brother Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ, as we sang of just a moment ago. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So James is telling us up front that he's writing to Jewish background believers. But these believers who come from the 12 tribes are not in Jerusalem. Most of them are not in Israel, but they are scattered among the nations. They are Jewish background Christians living in Gentile nations. And as a result, they are experiencing significant persecution. They were already persecuted when they were scattered. They were pushed out of their homes. They were forced to move to these other places and to take up residence, to seek refuge there. But now, even though they've found a place to live, the persecution continues. And James begins this letter to these Jewish background Christians scattered among the nations of the Gentiles by reminding them that their suffering is not without a purpose. That suffering produces perseverance and it produces maturity. And James begins after the word greetings by saying to these Jewish background Christians scattered among the nations, when you suffer, you should consider it pure joy, which is not typically our natural reaction to suffering, is it? to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. My sons, Aiden and Noah, and I just took a quick trip down this weekend to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we used to live in the DFW area, so for years I was used to driving on those highways and driving in that traffic. 
But being back down there again, I can tell you for sure, I do not consider it pure joy when I am driving in that Metroplex. It, I, it feels like a trial. It feels like a test. It feels like suffering. And my boys can confirm for you that I don't consider it joy. In fact, every fruit of the Spirit is tested in me when I'm driving in that traffic down there. It's not a normal reaction to consider suffering and trials and tests and frustration to be pure joy. But James says that it is so because God has a purpose in it. And part of that purpose is that we would learn even more to rely on Him. And you've probably experienced this in your life, I certainly have, that God has a way of being uniquely present with us when we suffer that we don't experience at any other time in our lives. There's something about when we trust God through our suffering, when we realize in the midst of hardships and trials that, that we are completely dependent upon Him and we can't solve our problems on our own. There's something that happens where God becomes uniquely present with us and we're aware of it like we're not, we've, we've not been aware of it in other cases. It's not that God's not with us when things are going well, but sometimes we just fail to notice. But he has a way when we're suffering of being uniquely present and giving us a strength and giving us a compassion and giving us care that we haven't experienced at other times. Now, if we're honest, as much as we're thankful for God's presence in those moments, we'd rather not go through it again, right? It's not as if we say, God, thank you for being so present with me in my suffering. I'd like to suffer more in the future. That's not how we feel, yet if you've experienced that presence, you know what I mean. God's not only uniquely present with us in suffering like at no other time, he's also present with us like no one else can be. And he, he gives us love and encouragement and strength that only he can give. And if you're like me, you could probably also acknowledge that many, many times the trials that you face are your own doing. And that's certainly the case for me. Many, of time, many times the trials that I face and the worst seasons I've experienced in my life have been of my own doing and have been because of my own sin. James has a lot to say about sin. As we go through this letter, and he, he, he gives us this practical teaching from the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes it's about what it means day after day to stay away from sin. Sometimes that means to, to learn as we grow how to stop breaking God's commandments. Sometimes that's what our sin is. We are, we are actively breaking God's law. But there are other times, as James will say later, when what our sin is, is failing to do what is right. Not walking as God has commanded us to walk. Not doing what he's told us to do. In many cases, our trials and our sufferings are simply because of our sin. St. Augustine said it this way, to be human is to live the most dangerous life amid the snares of temptation of any other creature because only human beings are truly tempted to sin. And that is where the enemy gets us most off course and most distracted from God's kingdom purposes in our lives when he can draw us into temptation and into sin. And so James says, when we suffer, we should consider it joy. At times because of our own doing, 
but at times it's also because of our circumstances. As we said, the early Christians to whom James was writing were experiencing significant persecution, and they were actively praying for God's deliverance. And one of the practical things that James teaches here in the beginning about suffering is that God also uses our suffering for our own good. That's another reason we can take joy in our suffering, because God uses our suffering for our good. For one reason, one way that he does that is by helping us to produce perseverance and using suffering and trials to help us produce perseverance. Depending on which translation you're looking at, you may have the word perseverance. You may have other words. You may have the word endurance or steadfastness or patience or long-suffering. There's a lot of different ways this word is translated because it's hard to translate it in just one word. Ultimately, what James says here is that suffering trials produces in us strength that lasts. Strength that helps us in our present suffering, but it stays with us when we go into the next phase and the next thing. It's a steadfast strength. It's a persevering strength. It's an endurance that lasts, and it has a purpose to help us be stronger than we were before we entered into our suffering. The other thing that James writes here that suffering and trials does that's for our good is it continues to grow us in maturity in Christ. Two different times in verse 4, James uses the Greek word telos. And telos here, it's, it's, it's translated as maturity or becoming perfect. What telos really means is that God has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us, and he is actively moving us towards that purpose and plan. I think of the word telos in terms of a trajectory. That out in front of us, as God is pulling us forward, he has set a goal in mind. He has set a target in mind. And when we follow him faithfully, when we don't merely listen to the word, but we do what it says, and we walk in step with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are on that path. And that trajectory which is moving us forward in maturity to become the people that he is, is helping to shape us and form us to be, that maturity happens even when we suffer. And as we trust him and as we walk with him through it, we are headed somewhere good in the direction that he is leading us. That, that, that perseverance, that maturing will finish its work to the point that someday we will be able to say we are complete and we are not lacking in anything. But I have a feeling if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, who's already there? Who's already at that place where you're not lacking anything? None of us would raise our hands because we all know that we're still a work in progress. That point of not lacking anything is probably a point we'll never reach until we take our last breath and we are present with the Lord. But until that time comes, God has a plan to continue to grow us in our spiritual maturity. And as we walk with him, as we follow him faithfully and obediently, he continues that good work in us, leading us towards that completion. 
in Romans chapter 5, Paul says something very similar. And I want to share this scripture with you here before we move into the second half of our text for a couple of reasons. One reason is I want you to see the consistency of scripture. I want you to see how the Holy Spirit says through another apostle writing to a very different group of people the same kind of thing that they would also be encouraged and trust in God's perseverance. But also there's this idea that's been out there for a while now among some New Testament scholars that Paul and James were constantly disagreeing with each other. And some will take the, the book of James and they'll say some of the things he writes are contradictory to what Paul said. And I could not disagree more. In fact, I think as we go through this letter, we're going to find lots of places where James echoes what Jesus said and Jesus taught, and where James and Paul, rather than being in disagreement, they complement each other. And the Holy Spirit uses each one of these apostles and what they wrote to deliver to us the words of God. Not the words of James, not the words of Paul, but the words of God. So if you ever come across that argument that James and Paul were contradicting each other, nicely with a smile on your face, tell that person they're wrong, okay? Because that's, that's not what we have here. And look at Romans 5. Not only so, Paul wrote to the Romans, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Both James and Paul, writing through the Holy Spirit, talk to us about the what and the why. But James then goes forward with the practical, the how. So how do we do this? How, how do we, when we face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy? And what does it look like to call out to God in our time of need? Moving into verse 5, James says, When you find yourself in that place, when you realize you lack the wisdom that you need, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, because God gives of himself generously to us when we ask in faith. Again, this language of wisdom is something we're going to see throughout James's letter. And to those Jewish background believers, Jewish wisdom teaching and wisdom literature was speaking their language. The Jewish people, as much today as in the ancient world, love practical teaching on wisdom. They love the book of Proverbs. They love the wisdom Psalms and the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. And James is pointing to that wisdom and that language, even as we heard from Proverbs just a little bit earlier in our service. And he says, if you're lacking the wisdom that God gives, all you need to do is ask. And because God is a God who loves to give generously to his children, when you ask in faith for something like godly wisdom, you can be sure that God will give it to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Now, you might find that little phrase a little bit strange. 
In one way, I think it's just James's way of saying that even though we're sinners, even though most of the time our trials and our sufferings are our own fault, God still will give us his wisdom when we ask. But another element that I think is at play here is the way that God gives us his wisdom. When we ask in faith for something like godly wisdom, not only does he give it to us, but he gives it to us without shaming us. I know oftentimes as a parent, I've been guilty when my, my children ask me what they should do of not just telling them the answer, but saying, how come you didn't already know that, right? I thought, I, I thought that should have been obvious because you've already learned this lesson before. But rather than shaming us for asking, James says when we ask in faith for something like godly wisdom, God gives it to us. And he gives it to us without pointing out our faults. But instead, because he gives generously to all who ask, when we ask for something like godly wisdom, he will give it to us. There are so many things today that claim to be wisdom. But the wisdom that comes from God, as James will talk about later in chapter 1, is wisdom that also comes with the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Wisdom that comes from God is pure. It's not selfish. It's not that which is meant to always stir up anger. It's not that which is meant to drive prophets or to call attention to us. But the perfect pure wisdom that comes from God is that which is a part of the work he is doing in the world to glorify himself. And make no mistake, when in faith, from your heart, you ask God for that kind of wisdom, he will give it to you. And, and as a part of this practical teaching, again, not just the what and the why, but the how, James finishes out this text by saying, this is how we should ask for anything that we ask for from God. God loves to give generously to his people. James says later in chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above it comes from the father who loves to give generously to us but when we ask because god loves to give of himself generously when we ask in faith james says you must ask through through faith by believing and not doubting because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. Therefore, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. When we're asking God for wisdom, or when we're asking God for anything else, do we ask in such a way that we trust Him, and that we trust that His Word is true, and that we trust that when we ask in faith and we ask according to His will and His purposes, that he loves to give generously to us. This idea of doubting can obviously be easily misunderstood. And I'm going to try to say this in less than 45 seconds, and I'm going to try to say it nicely, okay? But living in a, a place like Tulsa most of my life, I've heard this idea of doubting and not doubting abused. I've heard many times where someone says, that, that what God gives to us or the answers to our prayers are, are explicitly determined by whether or not we have enough faith or whether or not we doubt. 
I've even had a family member who blamed another family member for the death of our loved one because that family member said that person didn't have enough faith and that person had too much doubt and because of that our loved one died. I do not believe that is what James is saying and I do not believe that is what the Bible is teaching. We all struggle with some doubts from time to time. We all can never be completely certain that when we're asking in faith, we are asking in the perfect ways. What I believe James is pointing us to here is a firm foundation. Do you trust God? Do you have faith that God will hear your prayers and give generously to you according to his will? And standing on that firm foundation of trust and faith, ask with confidence. And don't be like that person who is blown this way and that way like a wave of the sea. Oh, let's chase after this thing. Let's chase after that thing. No. Be the person whose feet is on the solid ground of the firm foundation of the Word of God. And when you ask like that, and when you ask for something like the wisdom that only God can give, God hears your prayers and He will give that to you that's the firm foundation that's what it looks like to not be double-minded and fickle and blown and tossed this and that way by the wind to stand on the firm foundation of the word of god through jesus christ as the holy spirit speaks to us what did paul say back in romans 5 as we read a moment ago those whose hope is in the holy spirit will never be put to shame because that kind of hope doesn't lead us to shame. It leads us to God and his purposes and his will. I love the way the ancient Christian who wrote The Shepherd of Hermas talked about this. He said it far better than I could have written on my own. Put away doubting from you and do not hesitate to ask of the Lord. Do not say to yourself, how can I ask of the Lord and receive from him, seeing that I have sinned so much against him? Do not reason with yourself like this, but turn to the Lord with all your heart and ask of him without doubting, and you will know the multitude of his tender mercies, that he will never leave you, but he will fulfill the request of your soul. When we ask of God from the depth of our soul, in faith, according to his will, standing on the firm foundation of his word and the promises therein, we can trust and believe in faith that God not only hears us, but that he loves to give generously to his children who ask in faith. Today, I hope you hear again the word that God gave to James is a word that he continues to give to us today. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and if you lack wisdom, ask God, because he gives generously to all without finding fault, without shame, and it will be given to you. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And as we have our time of invitation this morning, I want you to put yourself in a posture 
of surrender. And I'm going to just lead us for a moment through a, a, a time of prayer where I would encourage you to ask God in faith. If, if you know this morning there is something you need, and you, you need that something that only God can give, I want to encourage you to ask in faith that God would give it to you. As you bow your heads with me, maybe the thing that you need to ask God for in faith this morning is forgiveness. Maybe it, it begins with confession, that you need to confess something in your life or confess your sin in general and ask God to forgive you. Would you know and trust this morning that if you ask God for forgiveness, that is a gift he gives generously? If you doubt that, just picture the cross that we sang about. Picture Jesus on the cross, giving his very life so that you could be forgiven for your sins. If you need to ask God in faith for forgiveness today, believe that he will give that to you generously and without shame. Maybe you need to ask God in faith for strength to persevere. You're facing something hard right now, a difficult season, a difficult thing. Maybe in faith you need to ask God for that strength that leads to perseverance. Maybe you need to ask God in faith for wisdom, for wisdom and guidance for whatever it is you're facing today or for the next step that you need to take in your spiritual journey towards maturity and towards completion in Christ. Maybe the Lord has laid somebody on your heart today or somebody's just heavy on your heart today. And you need to ask God in faith for that person, that God would work in their heart, that, that God would intervene in that situation or whatever it is. If there's someone on your heart today, ask in faith that God would hear your prayer on their behalf. Or the last one I'll mention, maybe today you simply need to ask in faith, ask God for peace. Maybe your life is in turmoil. Your heart is in turmoil Maybe even this whole day has already started with some turmoil in your life. And you need to ask God for peace. Ask God in faith for peace, and God will give you a peace that only he can give to you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that as we ask from the depth of our souls, Lord, that you would not only hear our prayers, but help our prayers. Continue as as we grow in maturity and faith to help us know how to pray. Continue to lead us that as we follow you, we would grow in maturity and we would continue to walk the path that you've laid out for us. To not merely be hearers of the word, but those who put it into practice, who do what it says. And Lord, I pray today if there's anyone who is joining us either online or who is here in person, who feels a distance from you, they feel separated, they feel cut off. Lord, in this last moment of worship, I pray that you would draw near to them, that they would see you for who you are, they would know your love, your compassion, your grace. And Lord, that they would reach out to you and find you today as the peace for their soul that their soul longs for. In Jesus' name, I pray all of these things today. Amen.